Church podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Isaac Thibodeau is preaching the second part of our Advent sermon series, and the sermon title is Joy to the World. We hope you are blessed by the message today. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Every, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ, into the world to redeem us. Thank you for the joy he brings us through his passion and resurrection. Thank you for the good news that we get to celebrate today on this Lord's Day and this day of Advent. May our eyes and our hearts be completely focused on you. May the preaching of your word be clear and change us, God, to be more like you. And I pray you do this in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Is the microphone switched over now? No? Okay, I'll still use this then. All right. Well, good morning, church. For any of you who are new here, my name is Isaac. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in the middle of a Advent series that uh, is four parts. This is the second one. Joy is what we will be talking about today. Last week, Pastor Joel talked about hope. And in all of these sermons, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament and getting, trying to transport ourselves back there and seeing and feeling as much as we can what it would have been like for the people of God before Christ came and in anticipation for this Messiah, this chosen one to come. And then we'll see how in the New Testament those promises are fulfilled in Jesus. So today we will be in Isaiah chapter 9 and we'll be covering these seven verses. And we'll just go line by line through the whole thing. And I think you're going to see that while we will be covering some very important doctrine and theological points that we're going to have to get through, you're going to see the overarching overarching theme of joy that God brings. So I have the, uh, it should be on the screen, the main point, I'll give you it right now. So if you miss everything else, what I'm about to say, I'll give you the main point up front. The main point of this passage is that Christ gives joy to his people by defeating their enemies and bringing peace to the world through his reign. 
I'll say that one more time. Should be on the screen. Christ gives joy to his people by defeating their enemies and bringing peace to the world through his reign. So as I mentioned, um, we are going to be having to dig deep here. There's going, there's going to be a few places especially where most of us may not have thought about some of the wording here and how relevant it is to us. This passage is in the book of Isaiah. This is a Jewish book. It was written for, uh, at, at the time, it was written to the nation of Israel. And because we are not Jewish by ethnicity, it can, uh, sometimes some of these things can be a little confusing and how they apply to us, but they do. And I hope to show you that today. So let me give you some context before we get into the verses that follow. So in chapter 8, which is before 9, the Lord tells of a judgment that's going to happen on the land of Israel by a particular nation called Assyria. And that should be familiar to you if you've read the Bible or heard it taught before. The Assyrian Empire should ring a bell. That's where the land of Nineveh was from. And the Assyrians were a particularly formidable enemy to Israel. They invaded them multiple times, and they would ultimately be the nation that overtook the northern part of Israel when the nation was divided into two. So in Isaiah chapter 8, it's God's judgment pronouncement over Israel. And this is how it ends in verse, um, the very last verse of chapter 8. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So that's God's judgment on Israel for their rebellion against him. God chose Israel to be a people through whom the Messiah would come, through whom the nations would be blessed. Through every story that we read, we see a little glimmer of hope through each of the patriarchs or through the kings, the ones that were obedient, but then they fail or they die. And then someone else comes in who's wicked and who does not follow the Lord. And it's just this constant pattern. Thank you. This constant pattern of rebellion, repentance, restoration, laziness, rebellion, repentance. And it just goes on until Jesus comes. And Jesus came to end that cycle. So, starting in verse number one here, we'll read this again, Isaiah chapter nine, and we'll get started on our journey through these seven verses. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So just one verse before this, we see the pronouncement that thick darkness would be over the land. But then immediately here in verse 1, just the following sentence, God gives hope to his people. He gives hope. And this would be a lasting hope, one that would change the future of God's people forever. So in order to get how to feel how this would have impacted Israel when they read these words, we need to understand some things about Israel's geography. So it mentions the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those two tribes were in the north. They were the northernmost part 
of the nation of Israel. And most of Israel's most formidable enemies came from the north. The Assyrians, the Babylonians in the northeast, the Romans in the northwest, the Greeks in the northwest. All of their enemies, for the most part, their worst ones, came from the north. So if you lived in the north, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, it was the most dangerous place to live in the whole nation. You were always living under the shadow of invasion. And it was not a good place to live. The northern region, it says here, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Anytime God pronounced judgment on the nation of Israel, and it was a northern invader, the first people in Israel to experience God's judgment were the people in Zebulun and Naphtali, the first people to experience his judgment. But look at how God turns this on its head, as he so often does. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So when we get to Jesus' time, Israel has been divided and dispersed and then regathered in the, in the land, and Galilee is now the name for that region. That should sound familiar because that is the region where Jesus grew up. He grew up in a town called Nazareth in the region of Galilee. So what's happening here is in the darkest part of the nation, the darkest part, a light is promised. A savior is promised. One who would make this desolate place, this place to live that was, um, you would be full of fear for living there. God comes and brings glory to it by he himself dwelling there. A light in the midst of darkness. So with that being said, we get right into verse 2, and this is where it starts to get really awesome. So verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. So imagine being a Hebrew, being a Jew, at the time that this was being written, which is about 600 years before Jesus came. Or imagine reading it the generation before Jesus came. For si about 600 years, the nation of Israel was under captivity from the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. 600 years. Their worship was regulated. They were persecuted. They were robbed through high taxes. Many of their own people abandoned the faith altogether to live lives that were more comfortable. And you can imagine reading this verse, your people have been suffering through this for 600 years because of their sin. 600 years. And reading verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. This promise would seem impossible. It would seem completely made up, untenable, completely. But we know that this prophesied one did come, and his name is Jesus. Listen to what 
the Apostle John writes about Jesus. This is from the first chapter in John. It says this, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then Jesus himself said in the same book, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So you see the theme of darkness and light being traced through and finding its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And just by way of practicality, I want us to remember, church, that Jesus is our light. He is the light of the world. We all have darkness in our hearts. We're born into darkness. And the only hope that we have is following, trusting in, swearing our allegiance to Jesus Christ, the Savior and the King. He's the only one that can break through your darkness truly into the darkest parts of your heart and shine his light through. And this is something that he does, that he breaks through. Yet at the same time, we must humble ourselves and we must get rid of what's in the way. We must let go. That's repentance, letting go, turning from your sin and turning to Christ. Yet mysteriously and gloriously, this is all a work of the Lord that he does when he so chooses. But you need to know that he will rescue you from your darkness if you truly call out to him. He will. He will do it. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. And there's our word, joy. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is, this is one of the awesomest parts of this passage, I think. One that we can easily overlook because of, of the default perspective we have of Israel in the Old Testament. And I hope today to show you a more full and biblical way of viewing this passage. Hopefully. <clears throat> so, listen to what it says. So, on this day, when this great light comes, it will be said that the nation of Israel was multiplied and enlarged. Okay? That's what it's saying. When this guy comes, when this, when this king comes, it will be said that he has multiplied the nation and increased its joy. But when we look back in history, if we look back to the time when Jesus actually came, and we look at the Jewish people, it's quite the opposite of this. Quite the opposite. Because when Jesus came, he divided Israel between those who followed him and those who didn't. He caused a ruckus. The religious leaders absolutely hated him, and they're the ones that actually put him to death, ultimately. His own people despised him and rejected him. Not, not even, I mean, and we can go past that, Within a generation of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, in AD 66, the Romans began a war. And for the next three and a half years, they laid siege to Jerusalem and Israel. And it's estimated that about two-thirds of all Jews living in Israel were killed. About two-thirds. That's 66% of the population. That's, that's a massive amount of people. 
So how can it be said that he enlarged the nation? Is this something that we're to expect in the future? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think there's a, a, the way that the New Testament tells us to interpret this and shows us to interpret these passages, I think will help us see the glory of this and how relevant this is to us in our time. So I'll say it succinctly here, and then we're going to read a passage to show it, and then we'll, we'll continue on. Like I said, we do need to get into some, some theology and some doctrine here in order to really grasp the glory and the joy that we can have in this passage. So I hope that you will follow along as we do this. It's very vital that we understand the New Testament's view of the Old Testament. This is, I'll say it succinctly, and then we'll, I'll hopefully be able to show you from the New Testament. The church, or Christ, and by extension the church, his body, was understood by the apostles to be the fulfillment of Old Testament Israel. So Christ, and by extension his body, is the fulfillment of Old Testament Israel. Not replacement, fulfillment. I'm going to read a passage to you in Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to turn there in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 11 and down to the end of the chapter. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, down to the end of the chapter. Listen to the word of the Lord here. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, that's Jew and Gentile, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's a loaded passage, and we're not going to cover all of that, but I think you can see, just by reading that, a very different perspective than maybe what some of us are accustomed to. God's plan throughout all ages, throughout all ages, from the very beginning, was to have people from every tribe, tongue, and nation serve him. It's always been about all the nations. We can look back at Abraham and see the promised the promise that was made to him, that your seed will bless the nations. And Paul tells us in Romans and in Galatians that that seed is singular, and it's Christ. He's the promised seed. He's the one to whom the inheritance and all the promises of Israel belong. It's to Jesus. 
the only faithful Jew that ever lived, the only one that kept the covenant, therefore the only one who gets the covenant blessings, is Jesus Christ, the only one. But the glory of the gospel, and what Paul is teaching here, is that anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, who believes in Jesus is counted as offspring, is counted as part of those covenant blessings because of Christ, because Christ fulfilled the mission of Israel. Christ is Israel. He's the true Israel. And all of us who are in him are united to that, and we get all the blessings and promises that were ever promised to Israel. And Jesus took all the curses upon himself on the cross for our sin. So it's all wrapped up in him, all of it. All of it is. It's all about him. And I know for some people that might, you might feel a little uneasy about that because there are some that put a lot of emphasis on national Israel. And I understand that, and I certainly don't want to, um, to hit you in the face with a hammer, <laughs> so to speak, with this. But I do want you to know, like, this is, I, just study it out yourself in the New Testament. Look at the way the New Testament talks about this. And I think you'll see, I think you will see that this is the, the understanding of the New Testament. So Israel is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the church. And this understanding helps us see these prophecies in the Old Testament and how they really were and are being fulfilled by Jesus Christ and the church in this present day. He has enlarged the nation. He has multiplied the nation. This happened from 11 disciples on a mountaintop, blue-collar workers, weren't scholars by any means, most of them had really messy, sketchy pasts. And Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Baptize the nations. Teach the nations to obey me. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded. The nations. All of them. And guess what? That happened and is happening. From the little spot in Israel... There was about 120 people just before Pentecost. Pentecost comes. The Holy Spirit comes. 3,000 people are saved that day. And from then on, we see the explosive growth of God's kingdom on earth, of his people. Not in a political way, but in a moral and spiritual way. Something that's way better than a political kingdom. One that is, that is beneath it and grows up. It's like, instead of starting from the top down, Jesus starts from the bottom up. He starts with the lowest of the low, the, just the regular people who aren't really that special. But he loves to use weak vessels because in our weakness, his glory is magnified because we can't take, we can't take pride in it when it's all of him. And that has always been God's way. And he has multiplied the nation of Israel because true Israel is now all over the world. Anyone who believes in him is counted as true Israel through Christ. And therefore, he has enlarged the nation and spread it across the whole world and is continuing to do so and will continue to do so until he comes. And there will be many battles we have to fight. This does not mean there is not a kingdom of darkness still that needs to be fought against. There absolutely is. But we fight with the hope knowing that Christ has won. Christ has won every battle. He will win. When he, when he comes back, there will be no one who can raise their head against him. No one. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is king. 
Every single one. And the question before you is, will you bow now while you have the choice? Will you bow now and accept Him as your Savior and Lord, or will you bow when you're forced to and it's too late? That's the question. So verse 4, turning back to Isaiah, chapter 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So here we get an awesome sense of the joy of this king defeating the enemies of God's people. So the day of Midian, that should ring a bell if you've read the book of Judges before. The day of Midian... It's the day where Gideon, not to be confused with Midian, Gideon led a very small army of 300 men armed with only clay pots, torches, and there was something else too. Trumpets. They had trumpets. That was, that was their weaponry. That's what they had against thousands and thousands of Midianites who had been oppressing God's people up until that point. And God took the Israelite army that was thousands upon thousands and dwindled them down to 300. He made everyone else go home. 300 people against thousands and thousands. And they didn't have to lift a finger against the enemy. God did it all. They surrounded the encampment with torches at night. They blew trumpets. Everyone got so scared that they started killing each other. All the Midianites, they just fought against each other and they were all defeated. That was a miraculous thing. So the day of Midian in Israel's history is a glorious thing to look back on. Kind of like we look back on like the Declaration of Independence or some, some other victory in, in America's past. That's how Israel felt about it, except even more so. So what, what this passage is saying is just like, just like on that day when the burden of our oppressors was lifted by God's power, so it will be when this king comes. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, it would be really easy to take this passage at face value and think that the oppressors being talked about here and prophesied about are merely just pagan nations like Greece and Rome. And while it certainly includes that in a sense, that's not the primary purpose of this passage. First and foremost, God delivers his people from their true enemies, which is Satan sin, and death. Deliverance from physical enemies wouldn't actually have done Israel any good because God had done that countless times before. But every time he did, the people would rejoice for a little while and then they would get lazy, they would go back into idolatry, and they would continue sinning. So physical deliverance clearly was not the answer. That's clearly not what Israel wanted. And this is what made the Jews so confused when Jesus started teaching about the kingdom. Because he was talking about a kingdom that was not violent, a kingdom that started from the ground up, from the bottom up, and that grew slowly, and that was a spiritual immoral kingdom, not a political kingdom. They were expecting a revolutionary to come and just completely obliterate Rome, but that didn't happen. Not in the way they thought, at least. So what we need to understand is that all these prophecies of, of Jesus defeating his enemies Ultimately, we need to understand the true enemy that's being talked about here. The true enemy is Satan and sin and death. Now, it certainly includes pagan nations that 
refuse to bow the knee to Christ. On, ultimately, on, on Judgment Day, when Christ returns, that is when all of these things will be fulfilled in their fullest sense. But in the, in the sense for us and how we're to understand this, applying today, Christ came to conquer the real enemies behind all of the pagan nations, which is Satan, sin, and death, particularly sin in Israel's case. So we need to remember that what Israel really needed was their heart of stone to be taken away, and they needed to be given a heart of flesh, a heart that had a heart beating for God, one that was surrendered to Yahweh. That's what they needed. And what we need to remember, church, for us is that Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He took the burden of sin upon himself. So if you are in sin today, you have sin that you're thinking about, you just committed maybe today or yesterday, and that guilt is weighing on your conscience, if you are a believer in Christ, lay it down at the feet of the cross. He has destroyed sin in his flesh. Lay it down before him. You, you are forgiven if you're in Christ. You are. You don't need to hold on to that burden anymore. Christ's burden is light, the one he replaces. You give him your heavy burden, he gives you his light burden. That's the picture we're to get. And I want to read this verse. I actually just read it this morning and added it to my sermon notes because I thought it was so, so fitting for this application. Listen to this. It's from 1 John 3.20. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. He's greater than our heart, whenever our heart condemns us. And this is for, for those who are in Christ, those who believe on his name, who are, his, who are his, his children. If your heart condemns you, give it to him. Give it to him, because he knows already. And he's, he's forgiven you in Christ already. So don't carry that burden anymore. Verse 5, For every boot of the trampling warrior... In battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So in ancient times, after a huge battle, it was very common for the, the defeated enemy to be piled up and all their, all their armor and garments and everything else to, to all be burned together. All of it just burned in, in one swoop, cleaning off the battlefield. That was a very common practice, and this is the picture we get because that's exactly what happened to the Midianites. So same, same idea is being carried on to verse 5. It says, for every boot. So we're supposed to connect verse 4 to verse 5 here. And we see, just as Midian was defeated easily by God, which is the picture here, just this easy victory that God had over the Midianites, in the same way, God's easy victory over sin, and Satan, and death. Now, don't get me wrong, it was very serious what Christ did, and it it was a huge burden on him. But when we look back and see what he did in three days, death, burial, and resurrection, it's gloriously simple. Yet it's so profound and deep, but it's gloriously simple. And for the massive enemy that sin and death is, how easy it looks to us for God to do that. God just did it himself, completely himself. He did it, just like the, on the day of Midian. 
completely defeated the enemies himself. And that's why we need to understand the types and pictures in order to get the full, the full force of this prophecy that the greatest enemies were not the physical kingdoms. But it was the very things that kept Israel in perpetual rebellion, which is sin and spiritual darkness. And one thing that, that really confused um, the Jews still was they expected all this stuff to happen all at once. And we can, we can understand that. When you just read this passage and not understanding church history, you just look at what this passage says. It looks like all this stuff is going to happen all at once and it's going to be very immediate. All these enemies are going to be destroyed immediately and the kingdom's going to be restored immediately. And that, that is not what Jesus taught. And what I don't want us to do, which again happens often, I think, because of misguided teaching sometimes, we look at these prophecies in the Old Testament and we want to chop them up. Okay, this is his first coming, this is his second coming. This is his first coming, this is his second coming. Now, there are certain, there's a truth to that, that there's certain aspects of fulfillment based on his first and second comings. But we're supposed to see it as this one big picture that begins and ends with his first and second coming. And that's consistent with what Jesus taught, where the kingdom would grow like a mustard seed. It would start really small, like we see it did. And then it grows slowly until eventually it overcomes all the plants in the garden. And again, that doesn't mean the world is going to be perfect. That doesn't mean everyone's going to be converted. There's still going to be darkness. There's still going to be kingdoms of wickedness that Jesus is going to have to just destroy on his day of judgment when he returns. But nonetheless, the overarching idea we get is that of victory, gospel victory. And that is something that Jews just couldn't understand, and it's something that we need to understand. Because for the last 2,000 years, Christ has been subduing his enemies through his body, the church. And not by a physical sword, but by a spiritual sword, the, the word of God, and not by a physical shield, but a spiritual shield, our faith, the armor of God. And every time a soul is converted by the gospel, an enemy has been subdued and brought into the kingdom of light. And every time sin is conquered in someone's life, or a nation repents of its wickedness, or a marriage is restored, or a church is planted, a child obeys his parents for God's sake, a father leads his family in worship, a mother nurtures faith in her, in her home, enemies, spiritual enemies, and sin is being put under the feet of Jesus, and his kingdom is gaining more territory on earth. It's not by electing Christians to power, although that's awesome if that happens. That's not the point. Because most of our brothers and sisters throughout the world live in horrible situations, in horrible governments. Clearly, that's not God's point. He changes things from the bottom up. And that, we, we need to remember that. We need to be humble. And that, just very practically, if we're going to serve the Lord's body, we need to look for the things that are the lowliest of the low, the things that no one wants to do. Those are the things that God uses to further his kingdom and to bless others. That's what he does. Being humble. <clears throat> so we're getting close to the end here. Look at verse 6. There's one more verse after this. Verse 6, for, and this should be the most well-known part of this chapter. We could all probably quote it. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
This is one of those verses that's quoted all the time at Christmas, and for very good reason. I certainly don't want to criticize that. That's, that's wonderful. And this is the promise that fulfilled God's promise to David. So this is, this is it here. So I'm going to read it for you. 2 Samuel 7. I think Joel referenced it last week in his sermon. This is God's promise to King David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be, able, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So let's just look at, at these four things very quickly here. This isn't just David's son. This is God's son, the eternal son of God. He's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's called Wonderful Counselor because his wisdom has no end. And he knows all things and rules with perfect wisdom and justice. He knows all things. Nothing can stump him. He's a perfect king and counselor. Mighty God, because he is God in the flesh, God incarnate, the maker of heaven and earth who upholds all things by his powerful word. This man, this God-man, mighty God. Everlasting Father, because he is the one who reveals the Father to us. And he is the exact expression of his character in nature. And if we have the Son, we have the Father also. He's the mediator between man and the Father. Everlasting Father is his name called. Prince of Peace, because he will finally bring joy and peace to the world. And all wars will cease, all sin will be eradicated, and all death will be defeated. We call that age, when that begins, the new heavens and the new earth, when God remakes creation, but does it perfectly. And all those who are his share in that inheritance. All of us who are his share in that inheritance. Where there will be eternal peace, no sin, no war, no death, eternal peace. Therefore, he is called the Prince of Peace. Lastly, in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So as we come to this last verse, there's a mysterious and, and glorious truth here. His peace and rule will continually increase over all things. Isn't that what it says? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. But is this happening now? Can, can, we, can we look at, like if we look at the news, does it look like Jesus is reigning as king now? Does it look like he is? If we just look at that and we don't look at the word and look at things with eternal eyes, then it looks like he's not reigning. That must be something in the future he does, but for now, this world has gone to pot, so to speak. It's awful. 
And while there's certainly truth, it is, it's an, there's many awful things in this world, that should not be what Christians resort to when we look at what's going on in the world. We, of all people, should be people who have joy and hope in our Lord. All of us. And the reason is because we know that He is reigning now. He is reigning now. What do you think the whole point was of the ascension? He ascends to heaven. Was that just because he wanted to go home and leave us to do something until he comes back and actually starts reigning as king? No. No, that's not what the ascension was about. The ascension was his enthronement at the right hand of the Father. Joel referenced this last week. We've talked about it many times in Daniel when we went through that book. He is at the right hand of the Father right now, sitting on the throne of David right now. He has, that's, that's why before he ascended, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. And that echoes Daniel 7, where the Son of Man is presented, riding on the clouds, presented before the Ancient of Days, which is where? Heaven. The Son of Man presented before the Ancient of Days, and to him is given dominion, authority, a nation, thrones, power. It's given to the Son by the Father at the ascension for accomplishing his work as his inheritance and his reward. And then his body, his church, now actually goes out into the world and gets those nations that belong to Jesus already. That's our job. That's why we're here. That's the Great Commission, to teach the nations. We're not, I've said this before in times past when I preached, we're not running a campaign for Jesus to get him elected. He's already king. He's already Lord of the earth. And we're telling the rebellious villagers to, to bow the knee to their king who's already reigning. And this is going to happen as we have seen in the last 2,000 years over time. And there's going to be ups and downs in this road. But ultimately, one day when Christ returns, we're going to be able to look back at history. And we're going to see how his kingdom he has bought people from every tribe, tongue, and language. And we will be able to look back over the earth and see his people everywhere. Yes, there will be many who are in rebellion against him, but there will be many who have bowed the knee to him. There will be many. So we, we should not get Elijah syndrome where we feel like we're the only ones who are following the Lord. No, he has many people. And there will be many more after us, which is why we need to raise our children like that's the truth. We need to raise our children. We, we need to live in such a way that it affects our great-grandchildren. That's how we need to live. The Lord may come back sooner than that, and I pray He does. I, I, I long for that day. That's, that should be our ultimate hope. Not what the Lord will do here on earth before His coming, but our ultimate hope should be when He comes back. But we can also take hope in what He's doing in history. And we need to live that mindset that the Lord is going to do great things in our future. Many people will be saved. But it depends. By God's providence, it depends on us raising our children and making disciples to know the Lord. So in conclusion, as the title of the message, Joy to the World, Jesus brings joy to the world through the forgiveness and the peace that he brings, through the defeating of our true enemies, Satan, sin, and death. 
And he accomplished this through his death and resurrection. And he, practically speaking, brings it to the world through his Holy Spirit, through the gospel, and through the church. This is how he does it. This is how he does it. And we need to remember that he's already king now, and we must all bow our hearts to him and give him our allegiance, because he is king. So invite your neighbors over for dinner and tell them this good news. Tell your coworkers, tell your family at Christmas. But most importantly, believe it in your own heart. Believe it in your own heart. Because what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his very own soul? What good is it to tell people the good news and not have it yourself? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you so much for this joy to the world that you've brought through Christ. Thank you for the joy that we can have in you, knowing our sins are forgiven and that you reign over all things. And even in the worst situations, you are sovereign over it and you have your own purposes for it. It does not take you by surprise. For those in the body who are suffering right now with various things, you know their pain. You know they're suffering. And while they are sorrowful, sorrowful, they can also rejoice at the same time, knowing that you are a God who will bring reconciliation and restore all things. And you have started that in Christ, and you will finish it in Christ. Lord, as we go to the table for communion, may we be sober in our heart but joyful remembering the anguish and the death, the suffering of your son Jesus, but remembering the joy that we get to partake of this meal knowing that our sins are forgiven and that we will share it again with him in the kingdom. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.